everybody. This is Miss Check, one of four music appreciation teachers at OHVA. I am joined with Mr. England, as per usual, because let's face it, guys, you know the deal at this point. So, Mr. England, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm real good. It's snowy. Yeah. It's sunny. It's it's nice out. It's Friday. All good things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a little cold. A little bit. But outside of that, you know. But you know what? Spring's coming soon. So I guess we can't complain too much. Yeah, not too much. <laughs> so this week, um, this is episode. Well, this is episode twenty-three of our class. Um, we are going to talk about the music of Detroit this week, and there's a lot of music to cover. We got a lot of information to talk about this week, um, and we we chose this because this week um, we're covering Motown in our class this week. So we wanted to talk about it and kind of share some things that maybe you don't know about Detroit and the music scene in Detroit, and maybe even some Motown stuff. And if you're unfamiliar with the concept entirely, Detroit is a giant mega center for music. It's 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 where there is a lot of kind of blending of cultures that showed up in Detroit. And as we talked about this, you know, when we were talking about the blues, we talked a little bit about how music traveled north and ended, some of this ended up in Detroit. And so that's where some of this blend comes from. And just like many parts of music and, and what we study in music appreciation, we know very well, and we've covered it a million times at this point, people take their musical tradition with them and they combine it to set wherever they are and it becomes something new. So we get we get this really cool Motown sound that we're going to talk a lot about. Now, Jeremy, being the diligent student and teacher that <laughs> he is, did a lot of research before this podcast and... Tell us a little bit about the research and, and what you were finding before um, we get into, like, the main contact. What were you finding in your research? Yeah, sure. So uh, it is a very large and varied musical taste and genre that comes out of Detroit. Kind of like you mentioned, it's a blending of cultures. In fact, I think um, Detroit has one of the largest – the Detroit area, Michigan, has one of the largest populations of uh, Middle Eastern people outside of the Middle East. Uh, so that is just an example of a culture that um, is kind of large and significant in this area of the country. And I say this area because I'm from Toledo, so I'm like less than an hour south of Detroit. Um, and what I found was not only the typical music that we think of from Detroit, which is uh, Motown, like you had alluded to, maybe a little bit of hip hop if you're familiar with like Eminem, uh, but some other crazy kind of stuff like techno, I did not know was born in Detroit. Uh, yep. So it is vast and unique and really cool and uh, makes me appreciate this area of the country a lot more, especially in its musical output. So we're going to – today we're basically going to cover all the stuff that I discovered because all I did, I just wanted to look up Motown and I wanted to explore the idea of Motown. And I thought it would be such a disservice to talk about Motown and not talk about all of the other styles that come out of Detroit. And again, if you're from this area, uh, like I am, or if you're a student, even if you live in Ohio, you know, you're relatively close to Detroit as opposed to somebody who lives in like, um, I don't know, South America or in Europe, right? We have this musical epicenter of cultural music to America, uh, again, a blending of different cultures and styles together to make new music. And that's what we're going to kind of delve into in this next half hour or so. 
Nice. Now, you mentioned that you live pretty close to Detroit. Do you go and visit Detroit ever? Do you ever head up that way? I have, yeah. So I have, uh, I've seen some concerts up there. They have a lot of nice venues. Uh, my cousin is a jazz major at Eastern Michigan or Michigan State? Michigan State. I don't get that wrong. Uh, but he plays some shows around Detroit. I've gone to see a couple. Um, I've gone up to see <laughs> one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life uh, was up in Detroit. I went and saw the Wiggles, which they're from Australia. Um, nice. Yeah, but they have a lot of great. That's a very family man thing of you to say, I think. Well, it is, but <laughs> we we joke all the time, my wife and I. We went to go see the Wiggles for ourselves. It just We had a good excuse to have our kids with us. <laughs> Wait, so what you almost just said is that you had your children so you could go see the Wiggles. I mean, I didn't realize that was a thing, but, uh, yep, that's where we ended up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally teasing, yeah, No, the so, I get it. I, I bought a shirt and everything. I'm a huge Wiggles fan. I could have a whole episode oh, on nice. the Wiggles sometime. And sh- we should, you know what? We should, Jeremy. We should have an episode on the Wiggles because I really know very little about them. Maybe oh you gosh. can share your wisdom I with us I know too much about, about them, but, yeah, I will. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> So let's start with like uh, kind of the first iteration of music in Detroit, which is, of course, the blues. So why don't you lead us into some of the blues? Right. So we talked a little bit about the blues, especially if you're in our class or you've been a listener for a while. The You can trace a lot of the music that shows up in Detroit back to the jazz and the blues era. And, and as I said in the opening, you know, most American styles can kind of be traced back to this. Um, one of the mo- most, I think, fascinating things is Detroit is one of the first cities that that folks moved to, people moved to, during the Great Migration of African Americans in the 1920s. So this is when, remember a time when there was, you know, slaves were freed from from where they were and they were allowed to move and they still had to make their own way in the world. So they were moving to different parts of the country to try and make a living. Well, Detroit ended up as being one of the places where a lot of folks moved to. Um, And at the time, and really today, I I can't say I know too much about the city of Detroit today, but it was very popular for people who were performers because what else did you do in the 1920s? Let's just be honest. I mean, what were you doing? You were probably going to the club or going to bars and you weren't, they aren't in in the totally the same way that maybe we think of them now, but that's where like gathering places were. So people and performers would go to these clubs um, and 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 perform and do like blues and jazz stuff. So um, you know it was, it was really popular. Now early in an earlier episode, we talked about Chicago being a big hub for music, and really a lot of that was just because they had the recording facilities to capture some of this music, right? So they they could record people. Um, but then we get the blues kind of dying out. Um, it kind of re-hit again in like 1940s during the second Great Migration. But this time in that point, there were recording studios to keep them there. So they weren't going over to Chicago to record anything. They could do it there in Detroit. So we get that's where a lot of some of this the stuff we're going to talk about. It stems from this whole like blues movement that happened in the early, you know, century. Yeah, and I guess we should have uh talked a little bit about why Detroit is so important in the world and why like some of these migrations happened. Uh, so Detroit is – it's on one of the Great Lakes. So if you're not from this area, the Great Lakes, there's five, the far, five largest fresh body – fresh water bodies of water. That's a really weird way to say that. 
the five largest <laughs> we, bodies of fresh water <laughs> in the world. And so they have a lot of industry around them. These great lakes, people have like barges and stuff that come over there. Detroit is uh, right on the lake. It also is right next to Canada, uh, right next to Toledo, and very easily accessible to places like Chicago. So it was kind of an epicenter of collection of people, but also of industry. Detroit is the motor city, which is all about cars. So the big car makers and manufacturers of America are all stationed in uh, Detroit. The assembly line was born in Detroit. Uh, Henry Ford is from that area. You know, it's people went there because there was work to do, which is why if you're coming from the South and you are not very uh, educated or skilled in anything except like manufacturing or factory type work or line work, uh, that was an easy place to go get a job. So that's why a lot of people went north. And like Daphne said, the recording studios were actually in Chicago, which is why the next stop for blues musicians were west. So there's a lot of music happening in Detroit, but not a lot of music was being captured in Detroit until the second Great Migration, which would have been uh, right before World War II or right during that time, uh, where manufacturing again would have been like a huge boon because we were fighting a war, a, a world war. <laughs> so um, <laughs> there was more work to be had there. And this time the music industry was ready. Uh, another style that is kind of born. So you can kind of see, I hope, is Daphne was explaining it as I was thinking about it, this trace of uh, jazz and blues and gospel all coming up together, which was a music important and very popularized uh, by African-Americans, by the black population, especially coming from the South, which is why gospel was another important style of music that's born out of Detroit. There is um, a lot of churches that were recording services at that time. And so the cool thing about churches, even today, is that if you can get in and get like a regular gig, you get like pretty regular exposure to people. Like you get to play music every week, pretty much as much as you want to. Uh, And churches like technology a lot of times, so they'll do recordings. Like today they do live streams and stuff like that. But they're recordings and people can be up and comers and have a lot of connections because you want to support people that are inside the church, right? It's kind of like this nice network if you get it. And so as a result of that, there's this um, the daughter of a pastor in Detroit happened to be named Aretha Franklin, who we all know today is like this powerhouse of gospel and soul music. She actually got started in a church in gospel music uh, and got exposed because her dad gave her the platform and they were recording church services, so it got spread out. And so gospel is an important venue not only for performers, but exposure and uh, opportunities. That's probably the best word I'm looking for here is opportunity. If you can get in front of that crew, then the churches are a good way to to do that. So thanks, Aretha Franklin from the church. <laughs> yeah, I. it's funny when we were kind of talking about this in class, one of my students, as I was talking in the chat, said, Miss Check, are you fangirling right now? <laughs> and I had to laugh because I realized midway presenting it that I was. And it's really just because, you know, Aretha is known for, you know, respect, probably. Uh, I think that's what everybody knows her for. But if you read a little bit about her, you find out she's really got all these wonderful roots in gospel. And I I encourage anybody to listen to some of her early work 
um, I th- what was it? She recorded her first record at fourteen or something. Like she's she's an uh, just she was just an absolute force, and I think she also just had that really cool perspective. You know, she was maybe this is because I'm a woman, but you know, she really sang things through a woman's eyes and through a woman's perspective, the female perspective, and um, she was one of the. I, it, really one of the first people to do that in a modern way, I think. And so she, you know, I just, I just could not have more respect for Aretha Franklin and just what she brought to it. And it's so cool to hear about how her roots really are in this gospel uh, tradition that, that leads us to so many other traditions that we're going to talk about. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Aretha Franklin because I have a special place in my heart for her. I really do. Yeah. And the important thing to know, and this is a aside about gospel music because we haven't talked about it much, is gospel music inside the church is very different than what you might think church music as where uh, you might think of church music, depending on where you're from, I guess, and who you are listening to this, might be like uh, choirs and an organ or it might be uh, if you're newer, like a rock band type thing or it might be chants, depending really, or no music, but uh, black gospel music especially is very focused on the vocal performance energy and um, uh, not only the vocal performance of the choir, but like a standout soloist. Like it's kind of a coveted position to be able to be a soloist in a gospel choir because you have to be good. (laughs) You know, it's like a, it's a community of amazing musicians and gospel musicians are some of the best uh, musicians you'll ever come across. But that's no pun intended, but amen. <laughs> amen. Yeah. So that leads <laughs> us to uh, kind of like the, the grandpappy of all this, I guess, and that's jazz. Uh, it's kind of funny we're talking about this a little bit later, but um, I think it was important to highlight blues first because that was kind of this migration that happened. But we get to jazz and um, huge in Detroit. And uh, I don't know if I take this for granted because there's so many jazz clubs in Toledo, too, or so much jazz. There was a lot of jazz clubs, not so much anymore. Uh, but we're probably just like a result, a residual effect of that. But there's a lot of jazz in Detroit. There's a huge festival every year in Detroit. There's a huge festival in Monroe, which is just about 20 miles south of Detroit. Uh, every September, there's a jazz festival in Detroit. Uh, it's large. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, but there's a ton of. I'd be fun to go to. Yeah, maybe. Is it like a whole week long? Do you no, know? No, I think it's actually only a uh, maybe a few days, uh, just over like. Uh, I looked it up this year. I want to say it was around Labor Day, so it's around that time period. Um, I should have put the dates in there. Uh, no, that's okay. I was just curious because I was like, well, I mean, I know we're back at school, but, you know, I'm not, I mean, we're not far from it. No, nope, not at all. <laughs> Road trip. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, musicians. So Detroit's a performing city until we get really to like Motown. Detroit's a performing city and tons of jazz musicians came through. And jazz is cool to record, but jazz is all about playing, right? Uh, some clubs you can still go check out today. So if you're in this area, if you want to go check out a club, and some of these are sit-downs, some of these are lounges, some of these are expensive, some of these are not so expensive. They all have websites. Uh, the Hot Club of Detroit, Cliff Bells, Baker's Keyboard Lounge, which I thought was funny. They claim to be the oldest operating jazz club, but there's like one in Chicago that existed 20 years before them, so they can fight that out. Wait, they they claim to be the oldest operating jazz club uh, in the country? Yeah. Yep. That seems unlikely. Bakers, if you're listening, we want we want some hard <laughs> facts. Would you email us, please? Yes, please. 
Because I'm thinking about Chicago. I'm even thinking about New Orleans and like in the Delta yeah. area. Like I'm, I've got questions. But if you think so. about like, I mean, like a jazz club specifically, I'm sure they got it like worked yeah. out legally, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I still have questions. So Baker's Keyboard Lounge, hit us yeah. up, man. And then there's let us know Dirty Dog <laughs> Jazz Cafe. So there you go. Okay, that's just fun to say. <laughs> I know it is. Uh, that's just fun. So let's talk about pop music, though. I like pop music. Yeah. Well, I I definitely like pop music. I know maybe as a as a music teacher, I have this discussion sometimes with other people that, you know, well, you teach music, so you only like classical. Uh, this is, of course, people who don't you know know me or anything, and that's not true. So I guess that's a, l- a small tangent. But everybody's listening to pop music, and who doesn't need just a good pop tune to you know listen to? So it's not that big of a style in Detroit. I mean, it's there. You know, but it's not as popular or not as important. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Um, but there's some notable people here who hail from Detroit, Madonna being one of them. And if you don't know Madonna, then, wow, we're not doing our job at all. <laughs> but you should know Madonna. Um, everybody kind of knows her work. Sonny Bono, he was a – boy, he's got a weird life. He was, what, he was an actor too, right? Because so, yeah. didn't he do a show with Cher? He used to be married to Cher. Uh, and, he, so, and then he was the governor of – but Nevada, I don't remember. He was oh, a governor I forgot for a about that. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So he's also from Detroit. And this one I did not know, Aaliyah. I did not know Aaliyah was from Detroit. She was a pop star um, in the 90s, early 2000s. I might be getting my years mixed up here. But um, it was like right at the end of my high school and early college. And then, of course, Aaliyah died tragically. Um, so, but definitely check out her work too, because she's amazing, but that's fascinating. I had no idea she was from Detroit. Yeah. So like out of, uh, so Madonna, I think is like Detroit adjacent. I think she's like from the suburbs and they like kind of absorb her yeah. into it. And now, now she has like this mm-hmm. fake accent from Britain, Britain, but you know, she's, yeah. What is I don't that? Know, but she's from Detroit, you know, she's from the Midwest. <laughs> and then yeah. Aaliyah. We we're on to you, Madonna. Right. We love you, but we're on to you. <laughs> Aaliyah <laughs> actually went to a Detroit like performing arts school. So she is born and bred inside Detroit, a Detroit girl through and through. That I can I can see her like in the video dancing. Yeah. I can yeah. I'll TRL days. Oh gosh. Oh yeah. Okay. Well before I show my age any further, uh Jeremy, why don't you talk to us a little bit about R and B, Soul and Motown? Yeah, let's get to the meat of it all, which is yeah. this Motown sound. So Motown, just before we get into it, is uh Mo is short for motor and city Motown. It's like, you know, motor city music is Motown music. Um, this is probably the greatest contribution to the musical world, the musical landscape. Uh, and that's the thing, Motown Records from Detroit. It was started by this guy. His name was Barry Gordy Jr. in 1960, which is kind of a cool story. I learned about uh, Mr. Gordy is that he just wanted to share jazz with the world. So he started a record shop and it failed. Uh, <laughs> so he just kept going though. He like made some connections. Uh, he was a songwriter, which he ended up put, writing kind of a lot of famous songs and being involved in that world. And at some point in his career, he realized that he wanted a little bit more control of the process. And then at another point, he just said, I'm just going to start my own thing. And that's um, where Motown Records kind of got its start from in that, that 1959-1960 time period. He just said, I'm going to do all of it. I'm going to produce the people, produce the music. And when I say produce the people, um, he really 
started to sing, sometimes charm school. They called it artist development. Um, and this was a pretty fascinating thing because they would take these young uh, – and I, I think like mostly young black musicians – and I'm like trying to rack my brain to think if there's any white Motown musicians. I'm sure like there might have been, but this is purely uh, a style um, and a genre and a world for young black artists, especially this artist development, because um, he took people that were in his eyes unrefined and from the projects and then put them through charm school and basically told them how to act. Uh, how to talk, how to present themselves, how to um, interact with the public and interviews. Uh, so I, I pulled this quote here. I'll read it real quick. Um, the acts on, Motown, on the Motown label were, uh, oh my gosh, fastidiously groomed, dressed, and choreographed for live performances. Motown artists were advised that their breakthrough into the white popular music market made them ambassadors for other African-American artists seeking broad market acceptance and that they should think, act, walk, and talk like royalty so as to alter the less-than-dignified image commonly held of black musicians by white Americans in that era. Given that many of the talented young artists had been raised in housing projects and lacked the necessary social and dress experience, the Motown department was not only necessary, it created an elegant style of presentation long associated with the label. And I pulled that. That was a quote from Wikipedia. But uh, Barry Gordy was very concerned with image. And you could argue the merits on that, but he thought it was necessary and important that if you're going to be on his label, you're going to be basically, as said in this quote, you're going to be royalty. You're going to act above reproach. You're not going to give anybody any reason, especially uh, so you think in the 1960s, we're still like Jim Crow racism, civil rights movements like happening. It's a pretty contentious time that you're going – if you're on his label, you're going to act above uh, reproach. Nobody's going to be able to ever question anything you do because you're just uh, playing the part of, of you know, royalty. And some people would look at that today and may think like, oh, you know, like how could you just – make people what they might think more white, but in his eyes, it was to give people the opportunity that they might not have had and to open the doorways, not only for them, but for other people that looked like them. So very interesting guy. So was was the idea then that if, like, Barry Gordy thought that doing this charm school and doing these things would kind of get people out of their own way? And for listeners to, you know, not to to not just take these people at no, no horrible pun intended here, but not taking these people at face value, not judging them by the color of their skin and 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 getting that barrier out of the way so that they could really like focus on the music. Like was the idea that just, you know, they're not just black folks. Was that really kind of it? You know, I I don't know. I think I don't know how to say it really yeah. right. I don't think <laughs> and, so. And I don't mean to yeah, offend. I don't, I don't think so. The only reason I don't think so is because uh, in the country world, we'll talk about a guy named Charlie Pride, who is a, a black country musician who often hid his identity when they put out the music. So people would judge it based solely on the music. But if you think about the Motown era, it was all about performing. So there was no uh, questioning that who you were going to see 
was a group of uh, African Americans, the people that were black. Like you couldn't you couldn't hide that, right? So I think his approach was to lean all the way into it and to act, you know, just really like English royalty. You know, like you can't say anything. You might not like them because they seem pretentious, but you're not going to not like them because they're feeding into a stereotype that white America might have about them. So I think his approach was to uh, look at the stereotypes that people might see about them and then just swing so far in the opposite direction that you can never say like blah, blah, blah about this person because they've like trained it out of them. I think that was his approach to it all. I see. I see. Okay. I was just curious because what I was thinking about that as you were reading that quote and I was like, now I wonder if so. That's good. That's a good thought. That's a good thought. What, what I think is interesting is, and remember, these were a lot of people he was assigning were younger acts, younger people. So uh, they were um, they hadn't experienced a lot of life, and they have not made their own identity inside the musical world or the world at large. So they were unfortunately lumped into like you're from the projects and you're black. So you are a certain way. I only say that because more experienced artists, so like Miles Davis recorded on Motown records. Well, they're not going to make Miles Davis go through charm school because he's like an established musician. Like he has made his way through the world, uh, as his own person, as as Miles Davis. Like, he was established. He didn't need to go through the school. So this was like... Miles wouldn't have done it anyway, <laughs> let's be real. Right. Miles Davis had his own way of doing yeah. things, and you just did them the way Miles Davis wanted to that's do right. them. That's right. Straight when you're up. Like a boss. <laughs> yeah, he was a total boss. <laughs> yeah. So that's why you could see, like, Barry Gordy, like, his, his approach could be seen as controlling or... Um, more like manipulative. I think controlling is probably the better word. Like you can't be yourself. You got to be this caricature of like essentially a white person in order to make it as a black person. So it's kind of an interesting um, role that they're playing. And unfortunately, when you're in a performing art like this, like appearances matter, the way you act matters. Uh, and so where their um, status in life was greatly diminished. They had to work so much extra, um, you know, to get like to an even close playing field. Do you think this kind of set the blueprint for the late '90s boom of boy bands, where they were kind of, you know, in sync in the Backstreet Boys? They were a little bit scripted too. Yeah. Do you think this kind of laid a little bit of a blueprint for that? Oh, I'm sure. Like, if you saw like a recipe for success, you probably like churned out all kinds of. Things So anywhere the image is concerned, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Like it's like this blueprint of it. Um, Whereas like – and I don't know. I can't – you know, I don't know Barry Gordy's uh, full intentions obviously where I think this is being – We can speculate I guess. This is being nice in saying that he's aware that the people that he puts out from his record company and who is popular, the people that become popular are direct ambassadors for a whole culture. Whereas like a boy band like NSYNC or Backstreet Boys or, or O-Town, who we got to see the process of, you know, and making the band, uh, was all about conforming to a model that makes money. So maybe that was part of his intentions was to make money or maybe he truly saw that his calling and his his mission was to help 
break through barriers. Because I don't think, you know, NSYNC or Backstreet Boys were breaking through barriers unless you consider like a boy band as being a barrier breaker, <laughs> which I don't know if I would. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. for sure, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. They were just them. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think in the, the real answer I would probably give is he probably was motivated by both. And again, I've only done a little bit of research on Barry Goody, but he probably saw that like, one, they're ambassadors, you know, the groups he put out were ambassadors, but two, if they were good ambassadors, then they would break into the white market. And if the white people were buying music, then they would make money. So, you know, people are complicated, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. that's really what it is. <laughs> yeah. People are complicated, yeah. y'all. And maybe as we get through it further in the semester and do more research on our end, too, we'll see some of these things and have better answers. Right. But it was, again, there's just something I was thinking about as you were talking. I yeah. Guess. So just to, to – we talked about like the culture around it, but the Motown sound is very, very specific. Uh, I thought this was interesting. So it's a lot of call and response. Uh, so tra- continuing on the tradition of blues and stuff, call and response, lead singer in a group backing him up. Temptations had that dynamic, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, right? Um, it was very poppy sounding. So it's a fun genre. There wasn't a lot of sad stuff. It was very uh, just like happy, bubblegummy almost. Uh, very prominent bass lines, which is interesting because they actually EQ'd it so it was very trebly, which means it took a lot of the bass out because it sounded like on an AFM radio or AM radio, no matter where you played it at. Uh, but that's because AM would carry further. So it's kind of an intentional choice. Uh, not very flashy vocally, which is interesting because they're all very talented vocalists, but it wasn't a lot of like runs. Like Aaliyah uh, would be flashy <laughs> or a gospel church might be flashy, but Motown, not flashy. And then uh, this one's interesting. The backbeat, so one, two, three, four, is emphasized by a tambourine. That's just a Motown uh it's a very specific thing. It is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we'll, we talk sometimes about two and four, and I always have a joke with friends about, folks, when you're at a concert, you clap on two and four. Okay? Do that for me, please. Uh, but <laughs> but we joke around about that. But not there's this backbeat emphasis, which, okay, in and of itself is fine, but the with the tambourine I find very interesting because it's very specific. It's a very specific instrument to put on those specific beats. Very specific. <laughs> okay, so we got like three more genres to power through here real fast. Let's talk about rock. All right, so this is another important genre from Detroit. Um, I know we talked a lot about Motown, 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 um, and it's most, you know, that's probably most famous. But rock does come from Detroit, um, and, and it really kind of makes sense because we we get a lot of rock from the blues, and if you're in our class, we're, we're just about to approach the unit where we start talking about rock, and you're going to see those connections again. Um, so it's a really natural progression that, you know, we get some rock from Detroit. There are several, um, people from Detroit that are famous rock musicians. And I I don't know, I don't know much about Iggy and the Stooges, but that's the first one on our list. Do you listen to them? No, I have it. Rock, kind of pop rock or not pop, but punk rockish. Yeah. Yep. Iggy pop. And then we've got Bob Seger, Mm -hmm. uh, Ted Nugent, which I think these days makes makes the headlines for other reasons, <laughs> right. but he did at one point make music. Um, Alice Cooper, uh, I would hope it, these last three, at least everybody kind of has heard of. Um, so Alice Cooper, my gosh, he's been in the game for, I don't even know how long. I, I, I don't remember a time without Alice Cooper. Um, probably the most modern example is the white stripes. Um, everybody kind of listens to the white stripes. 
And then the pro- the one that I know, being a you know '90s kid, Kid Rock, who again might be in the news more for other reasons than his music at yeah. this point. Interesting people, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very colorful cast of characters when we're talking about rock from Detroit. Yeah. The other uh, thing that Detroit produced is something called Cream Magazine, C-R-E-E-M, and it was touted as America's only rock and roll magazine. And they, they're not around anymore, but they were they were at the time the only rock and roll magazine. And the important thing that we got out of Detroit from them was they coined the term punk rock, which is, you know, we just take it for granted. But they were the first ones to, like, label something as punk rock. Uh, hip-hop. Hip-hop, are you uh, – here we go. Hip-hop, there's a very unique style of hip-hop from Detroit. Uh, and so we talk about East Coast, West Coast battles, and then there's like Detroit. <laughs> and so um, – Yeah, Detroit's just chilling in the middle. Yeah. This guy from ICP and St. Clown Posse, this is what he says about it. He says Detroit's hip-hop scene is defined by independently building up successful business empires. So like ICP, they created uh, – I forget what the name of their record label is. Uh, but just like really out there, kind of obnoxious styles of hip-hop in my personal opinion. You know, that's – to be fair, that's editorial right there. But uh, – just uh, so I'll just limb off the axe and you can make your own mind up. Insane Clown Posse, uh, D12, Twisted, Big Herc, and then of course the most famous hip hop, uh, probably one of the the best hip hop artists. Not my opinion, but like uh, opinions of other people in the game, is Mr. Marshall Mathers, otherwise known as Eminem. Also known as Slim Shady. Also known as Slim Shady, and he, the real Slim Shady. And again, that when he's when he's <laughs> his alter resist. ego is Slim Shady, he's kind of that obnoxious, like hip hop, you know, that uh, yeah. comes out of I don't know, just like antics, you know, like we're East Coast West Coast very serious uh, styles of hip hop. The the Detroit style is a little bit more. Um, I don't even know the word for it. Funny. That's not a good word because I don't want to to tear people down just it's a different style it can it can be a little bit lighter yeah at times now even with that though some of eminem's work is really heavy right. um particularly some of his modern stuff like the stuff that he's kind of putting out i think he just put out something last few weeks and there's some heavy stuff in there and and maybe some of that is with age i don't know um but definitely when when m popped on the scene he was super lighthearted. You know, he wasn't really taking things too seriously. And I also think, didn't he have a part of, or I know he at least did a collaboration with D12, because um, they did How Come. But I thought that D12, that M was like a pseudo member of D12. Am I getting that confused? I don't know. They were associated somehow. Yeah, but they did. Or maybe like Eminem founded them. Like maybe he was part manager for them. I I don't know. So I, I don't know. I was I just I was thinking of that video when we were talking, but that's a good that's a great song. I, I always liked How Come, but with with D twelve and M, but that's my little shout out, I guess. <laughs> now there's this most unique style, which is interesting that it's not very popular in America, but it was founded in the Heartland, you know, the Midwest, and that is techno. It is according to a lot of people, the birthplace of techno for people. Juan Atkins, Kevin Saunderson, Derek May, and Eddie Falks. Uh, they all attended high school together, Belleville High School, uh, near Detroit, and they developed this music. And actually, where you're going to listen to it most or hear it most is in Europe. 
<laughs> so, uh, oh, wow. yeah, it's very popular in Europe, house music. There's a whole bunch of genres that come out of it. Jungle beats, uh, bass in something, um, techno, EDM, like all this kind of stems out of techno. And there's not a lot of events around here. Uh, when I was in college in BG, they had uh, a few – this guy started kind of like all the genres that come out of there, um, out of techno at a club called Clazelle. But uh, yeah, birthplace is in Detroit. I had no idea, and now it's not really existent in America. <laughs> so, yeah, it's amazing. It's a, it's just amazing. Anyway, well, you, we also have classical music that pops right. out of here. Which, <laughs> after all this, and we've talked about all this, the fact that we're even discussing classical music from Detroit kind of blows your mind. But it definitely is worth mentioning the Detroit Symphony is a really big deal. They're, they're, they're world famous. Like, everybody knows them. There's a couple symphonies that uh, everybody often talks about, um, Cleveland actually being one. Um, wouldn't think about how close Cleveland and Detroit are. So, um, And then, of course, London and moving on. But Detroit Symphony is really well known. And really, that's just kind of a nod to the fact that they've got this history of music in this town. And they can kind of, you know, I think you say perfect in the notes, the ability to support that culture. So there's a culture in Detroit that is very musical and they uh, are are really in touch with the arts. So they're kind of supporting every type of music, I would imagine. And that, of course, includes classical. And the other thing I want to highlight there before we get to the venues is uh, there's a very rich part of Detroit. So Detroit can kind of get this bad rap of being poor and like – uh, have not a lot of money. And certainly there's a lot of that that's true. But you also have to remember the industry that was there and uh, the amount of wealth that's actually in the Detroit area. And uh, so not in addition to – or in addition to supporting the arts, which a huge musical city, they can also financially support a classical orchestra, which is sometimes like the the defining factor of whether or not a city has an orchestra. Um so some famous venues if you're in the Detroit area, just to highlight real quick, I'm going to name off a bunch. Uh, the DTE Energy Music Theater and the Palace of Auburn Hills, both are like ranked as the places to go uh, to see concerts. Fox Theater, which is intricate and beautiful. That's where I saw the Wiggles and Paw Patrol Live. Um, oh, you, you know, threw another one uh, in there. That's not as good. So that's my review. Uh, Masonic Temple Theater and the Fillmore Detroit. So if you're in that area, you can go see large acts like I had some friends that just went up and saw Garth Brooks at the DT Energy Music Theater. So national acts, huge. Go check them out. Nice. And it's so cool, especially if you're, you know, one of our students and you're in the Ohio area. Detroit isn't far, folks. If you have the means and the time, take a trip. Go check it out. The best way to experience music is seeing it live, right? Yep, that's right. Absolutely. So we know we threw, out, we threw a lot of information at you guys, but it's because Detroit rocks is what we're trying to tell you. Cleveland also rocks, but Detroit rocks. So I had to, I had to throw the, the Cleveland rocks pun in after <laughs> nice. that. And on that terrible pun, uh, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping up the podcast. Don't forget, you can listen and subscribe to this wherever you want. As we've mentioned a lot of times, uh, Jeremy and I are big fans of Overcast, but you can listen to them on whatever app or through uh, the app store that you want. Um, you can find us on Twitter at OHVA Music. And Mr. England has his own Twitter. You can reach out to him at Jeremy P. England. And the website is OHVAMusic.com. If you go to that music, you'll be linked right up to the recordings of our past podcast. And with that, I think we're done for another week. 
Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to all this Detroit stuff. Go listen to it. I feel like that's the thing we always say, but it still holds true. Go listen to stuff, and we'll see you next time. Bye.